Welcome to Setsang. Could you please talk about responsibility today? Okay. So ultimately, uh, we're responsible for how we feel. And so the world throws things at us, doesn't agree with us. Maybe it lets us down. Maybe it steals from us. Maybe it betrays. Maybe it does this. Maybe it does that. But we make ourselves feel. Those things might touch us, but we make ourselves feel. We're the ones that are responsible for that. The moment that we don't take responsibility for our own feelings and we start blaming the world for how we feel, we are no longer taking responsibility. We're no longer really behaving in a mature way because we're not taking responsibility. And as men and women, uh, as we mature into age, we should be responsible. But unfortunately, we live in a world where there is a lot of irresponsibility. A lot of people uh, turn themselves into victims of life and uh, blame others, blame the world, blame themselves for how they feel. Unfortunately, this blame is resistance and it creates contraction and suffering. And as a result, keeps people locked in lower consciousness. And so it is only really a mature mind, and that's a mind that takes responsibility for itself totally, that will support our enlightenment or higher consciousness. Because the moment that we contract and take offense and blame something or someone, we are going into lower consciousness. We're taking ourselves there. We have been defeated by ourselves, not by the world. The world just does what the world does. People do what people do. We're the ones that are responsible for how we feel. So nobody can make you feel but you unless you want to put your hand up and volunteer to be a victim and blame someone else for how you feel. The moment you do that, you're behaving in an immature way. And in the world we live in, you'd get away with that to a certain degree because the world we live in is quite immature. But in the game of higher consciousness, that's a big fail because you've contracted You've gone into resistance and you've basically gone into lower consciousness. And so having expectations that things should turn out a certain way because of belief systems you may have quite often are the cause of this uh, contracting, going into lower consciousness, not taking responsibility for ourselves. And so we have to have a look at the mind and how it's working. We have to have a look at what belief systems are supporting these contractions, what belief systems are supporting victim-orientated thinking. And nobody is going to insist that you be mature. No one's going to insist that you take responsibility for your own feelings. Not really. It's up to you. Because we live in a society that seems to take offence to everything nowadays, the maturity levels are quite low. But then again, 
possibility of higher consciousness is quite low and the possibility of super consciousness is almost non-existent as a result. You can't have a mind that is constantly contracting against the world that is really going to support enlightenment. And this is why in Buddhism, they talk about developing an equanimous mind, a mind that stays level, even when attacked, stays level. The moment we take offense, there's no level anymore. <laughs> we've taken ourselves down a dark alley and mugged ourselves. We've been defeated by ourselves. You make yourself feel. No one can make you feel. People can do things that might touch you, but you make yourself feel. And you're the one responsible for any resistance or any victim-orientated thinking that occurs. Nobody else. You do it. You're the one that volunteers to be a victim. There's no freedom in that. There's just suffering. And it's at your own hand. It's not the world or existence or some other person hurting you. It's you hurting you because you're not taking responsibility for you. That's how it is. I was very fortunate in that I learned this when I was 19 years old. And I thought it was great to hear about this. Ken Keyes in the Handbook to Higher Consciousness outlined this at length, how we turn ourselves into victims and how we create suffering for ourselves and how it is actually a voluntary action. We volunteer to do it. We do not have to be victims. We can just see life as it is, such as life. Or we can blame and blame and blame and blame, play the blame game, get other people to agree with us, become absolute drama queens. But really, we make ourselves feel. Nobody else makes us feel. We are 100% responsible for how we feel, always. And if you're interested in higher consciousness, if you're interested in super consciousness, this is one of the things you've got to get. You make you feel. Stop blaming others. Stop blaming the world and stop blaming yourself. Stop being a victim so you can get free, so you can raise your consciousness levels. There is absolutely no chance while you're contracting and resisting life. You have effectively ruled yourself out of the game. That's your business. Are there any questions, any statements, any challenges to this teaching here today? We have a question. It feels more empowering to see myself as responsible for my own life rather than to see myself as a victim of circumstances. Yet I still sometimes blame situations or people. Why is it so hard to take responsibility? Because you haven't been programmed to take responsibility. Basically, you've been programmed to be a victim. More than likely, your parents were victims and they taught you how to be a victim. Your peers were victims. Your teachers, possibly, at school could have even been victims. We live in a very victim-orientated society. And so it's difficult to deprogram from that victim-orientated way of thinking. So, of course, you're going to fall back. When I decided to uh, let go of victim-orientated thinking, it took a long time to stop because I came from a family 
that was victim orientated. And I lived in a society that was victim orientated, always blaming something or someone for how I feel. And I had to change that because I wasn't interested in creating that level of suffering for myself for no reason. But it took a while. Default patterns don't change because of insight. They change because you practice something different to what you've been doing before. Insight is just the invitation to do the work. We have another question. Where do you draw the limit of your responsibility versus other people's responsibility? Well, if you hit my car and it's your fault, it's your responsibility. But if you hit my car and I go into a, a situation of uh, blame, become a victim of you, that's my responsibility. I'm turning myself into a victim. Now, I can hold you responsible to fix that car without being a victim. It's just business. You hit the car, it's your fault, it's business. I don't have to get emotionally involved in this. I don't have to turn myself into a victim. I don't have to go into resistance. I don't have to contract. It's just business. Or I can turn myself into a total victim. How dare you run into my car? How dare you damage it? Look at the paintwork. Me hurting me when I do that. Not the other person. The person ran into my car. Now I'm hurting me with my comments, with my thoughts. I'm just not into it. Not into my own suffering. Victims, by definition, are helpless. And what's more, they just hurt themselves. And this is how we create a pain body. This is how we build up emotional pain bodies, by being a victim of circumstance, a victim of other people, or a victim of ourselves. And there's no need to do so. Next question is, you sometimes describe yourself as a fatalist, but do you believe that we can choose our destiny if we're responsible for it? Probably not. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm talking to you right now about victim-orientated thinking, which is a form of intervention. It's coming from an external source, in this case, me. You're not thinking of these things and reprogramming yourself. You're getting an external source to intervene. And we were programmed by our genetics, by our parents, by our schooling, by our peers. We never programmed ourselves. It all comes externally. And so this brings up the big question of, do we actually have free choice? And my understanding is we don't because we run true to the patterns inside us that were put in there by other people. So how can we even claim that we're making our own decisions? Really? If we didn't program us, it's worth having a look at. The next question is, don't I have more responsibility to fix the world than to just my awareness to beingness? Oh, yeah. Fix the world. That would be really, really good. Uh, the world is in trouble because of lack of heart. You see, if there was heart in this world, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. 
the people who are destroying the planet are destroying it because of selfishness and greed, lack of heart. You want to fix the world, fix yourself first. Where's your heart? You want to make a difference on this planet, find your own heart. Start loving people, start loving things. That's what's going to fix this planet. And because there's a lack of love on this world, where capitalism gets to destroy the world in the name of making money, which has no heart in it whatsoever, this is probably how it's going to go. You want to make a difference to the world, find your own heart and love the people who are around you always. That's the best you can do as an individual. Love the world. Love the people around you. Make that difference. Bring that light into the world. The next question is, does one have to have super consciousness to perceive love? Heck no. No, love can be there at any stage. It's just a matter of being open, really. In a moment of openness, you can experience real love. Unfortunately, closure tends to forbid us from perceiving it. And because a lot of people are quite closed as a result of their upbringing, they don't perceive a great deal of love. Love is so beautiful, it just loves. It doesn't do anything else. And it's always, always here. But is it being perceived? And if it's not being perceived, why is that so? Why is it not being perceived? One of the interesting things about going to school is we were taught how to be efficient little machines, but we weren't taught how to love, and we weren't even taught how to be happy. The two things that would make a difference on this planet we're not taught. There's a certain craziness. The most beautiful thing in the world is love, but that's perceived in openness. And when we become selfless, we become open. It's a very beautiful thing, but that can happen way before enlightenment. That can happen at any time. <laughs> the awakening of the heart is the most beautiful thing, but it doesn't rely on super consciousness because it, it's always here. It's always here. All you've got to do is get out of the way and open up. Can you serve the heart and remain totally unconscious? I don't know what you mean by totally unconscious. <laughs> Uh, if you're totally unconscious, you'd be asleep uh, in your bed. My nice. I don't know what you mean by totally unconscious. <laughs> uh, you could be in a coma. That'd be totally unconscious. Um, whether you can perceive heart while you're totally unconscious, I don't think so. No. <laughs> Sometimes I get offended by others. When does my responsibility lie for my own experience? Always, every single time. How can you uh, think that it's okay to be offended by others and think that somehow you're going to raise your consciousness levels? The two things do not go in hand in hand. The moment we're offended, we've actually gone into resistance to life. That's, and we're probably in a dream about it. Oh, how dare you offend me? 
we've just lost it. We've just gone, we've just taken ourselves down a shoot into lower consciousness by taking offense. Have a look and see. We have the right to take offense, but if you're interested in higher consciousness, you're giving up your right to higher consciousness by taking offense. We are responsible totally for our feelings, 100%. The world just does what the world does, and the world is not going to change. It just does what it does. <laughs> and if you open up and you find heart, which was the previous question, you're going to find that the world doesn't change. It's just as mean and just as aggressive as it was before you opened up. But because you've opened up, now you can perceive love. Now you can perceive the true jewel of consciousness. It's up to you. When we take offense and we become a victim, in a way, that's a form of violence. Have a look. Victims tend to get angry. Anger is a source of violence. Have a look. Why do I constantly see the world as my enemy and don't see my own responsibility? Because that's what, how you've been programmed. You're just running true to your patterning. So you see the world as your enemy. Whereas someone who's programmed differently would see it differently. It's just how you've been programmed. We all run true to our programming, to our patterning. We've all been brainwashed to the max by going to school. And what's interesting is uh, investigating that brainwashing. In other words, investigating all the beliefs that were put into us by our schooling, by our parents, by our church, by our government, and see if any of them, any of them hold water. Or are they all prisons? It's worth having a look. We've all been brainwashed. Have a look. Have a look at these belief systems, particularly the ones that create contraction in you when the expectation on the belief system is not met. Have a look, because that particular belief system is going to take you into lower consciousness. It's worth removing. I discovered a long time ago that every belief system is worth removing. The next question is from Satcha. Hi, Satcha. Hello, Mr. Ram. If uh, God uh, doesn't change, but uh, if we can develop our silent witness, so rather than love, will it be helpful to us in our path? I'm sorry, Satcha. I didn't understand what you said. Can you repeat it, please? Okay. Uh, this word is not going to change. So if we can develop our silent witness, so will it be helpful? Well, the world's, not going, to, the world's not going to change. I, I get that. Uh, it's going to do what it does. Developing a silent witness inside of yourself allows you to see your mind so you can change your mind. It doesn't allow you to change the world, but it allows you to change your mind. It allows you to see your programming uh, your defense systems, your belief systems. It allows you to see you and it allows, because you can see you, you can then change you. That's all a silent witness does. It definitely doesn't change the world. 
No, that's fine. But if we go uh, rather openness, I mean, open of heart and uh, love others. If we just go on the way of uh, silent witness, so uh, is it okay or not? Or we must have to go through the uh, openness of heart. Well, the thing about having developing a silent witness that uh, sees the mind, it doesn't take long before you see how unhappy you are because you get to see how you create suffering for yourself by resisting life. And you get to see that openness is the cure for this. And so if you develop a silent witness, it's not long before you see that openness is the best way to live in this world. Uh, okay, Vishran. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Satya. The next question is, when I sit with spiritual masters, I find myself as beingness, but I lose it when I go back to my day. Where does my responsibility lie for my own awakening and not just relying on the presence? Right. So when I used to sit with my spiritual masters, I used to find beingness also. And I decided that I wanted to find beingness 24-7, not just when I sat in satsang. So I investigated what it took to uh, have that occur. And that was my responsibility. The awakened teachers that I used to sit with were offering the Buddha field that allowed me to find myself to some degree as truth, to find that peace, that silence, that stillness. But... I wanted to find it inside of myself, not just externally with my teachers. So I had to learn what had to be done to facilitate that. And in listening to my teachers, I discovered it was meditation, uh, self-inquiry, the practice of openness, the practice of putting yourself aside. And so that's what I practiced. It's not going to happen by itself. It's not going to happen because you listen to some spiritual teacher's words. It's not going to happen because you go into the presence of a teacher. That's just initiation. That gives you an, an idea of what's possible if you're willing to do the work to get you out of the way because you are the problem. There isn't another one. You and your constant contracting to life, resistance to life because you think you get offended or whatever. And as you remove more and more of uh, that contracting energy, that resistant energy because of the belief systems you have, the higher in consciousness you go, the less trippy you become and the less you suffer. But that's totally up to you. That is totally your responsibility. A spiritual teacher can show you the door, but only you can step through. Some teachers say it's just grace that we wake up. So where's my responsibility to achieve enlightenment? I examined this in length. What is grace? Some people say it's the Buddha field around uh, someone who's awake. Some people say it's luck. Some, some people say that it's something very, very holy. My understanding of grace is, is very simple. It's what spiritual teachers, it's a word that spiritual teachers use when they don't understand something. Oh, by grace. Oh, it happened by grace. Or it happened by... <laughs> I see, I really see grace as really karma. You see, whatever we put into life, we get back. And we have to pay back 
whatever negative we put in and we, we, we receive, we receive the good if we're, if we're kind, generous and loving. And so when I, when I hear people talking about grace from my perspective, I'm looking at it from the point of view of karma. You see, if somebody wakes up, their karma is right. If they don't wake up and they've done all the work, the same as the person who did it's their karma's not right. They haven't balanced out yet enough. Even though karma belongs to the body and not to beingness, I see grace as karma. Anyone, anyone talks to me about grace, or if I ever use the word grace, it just means I'm saying I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Pretty much. This whole idea of holy, this whole idea that someone's special and someone's not just because they might be spiritually advanced to me is absolute and utter rubbish. We are one. There is only one here. There is no better. There is no worse. There is no holy. We are one. And if you're willing to put in the work to raise your consciousness levels, you can discover that to be the truth up to you. 100% your responsibility. I don't have any time for these, uh, this, this holier than thou stuff because it's rubbish. Nobody is holier. Nobody. We are one. Anatole and Dawn ask, Vishrant, do you recommend practicing breath awareness? Heck yeah. <laughs> that was my main practice because that's what Osho taught. <clears throat> well, he taught a couple of things. He taught breath awareness and he taught the practice of witnessing the mind. Well, he also taught self-inquiry, but the Zen style. And I practiced all three of those methodologies. Watching the breath was one of my main things for meditation, which I did every day. Uh, and witnessing the mind also. And self-inquiry, Zen style. I did. And so, yes, 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 yes. Do I recommend it? Yes, yes, yes. My master, Osho Rajneesh, recommended it and it changed my whole life. It got me to, to become more present. It got me to see through my mind. It got me to find myself as truth in glimpses, which gave me the thirst to go further. So the answer is yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the next question is, are there any way, other ways to see your mind and become more conscious that aren't meditation? Yes, there is. Get yourself into a mystery school or a group of people that are interested in having a look at themselves. Get yourself involved in encounter groups that examine how the mind ticks, how your mind ticks. And this is the other way. Meditation can show you a great deal about your mind, but so can hanging out with people who are into higher consciousness, who are having a look, who are willing to tell you what they can see in you. And so from my perspective, that was invaluable in this life. I got involved in encounter therapy when I was 19 years old and continued ever since because I valued the opinion of people who could see me because some of the things they were telling me, I couldn't see because I was blinded for, for some reason. And so meditation and witnessing the mind is wonderful. 
but so is hanging out with a group of people who are willing to tell you what they could see. When I was with friends, quite often I would say to them, if you see something in me that doesn't seem right, please tell me. And my best friends were the ones who were willing to risk that friendship to tell me. The next question is, what is self-inquiry Zen style? Aha. Uh -huh. Self-inquiry Zen style is, well, quite often it's done with two people, but it can be done with one. So you've got a partner and the partner says, tell me who you are. And then you answer who you are. And you keep answering who you are. Uh, so they may say, uh, tell me who you are. And you may say, well, I'm a man. And then you discount that. And then they ask the question, tell me who you are. Oh, I'm an energy form. Then you discount that. Then they ask, tell me who you are. Now this, there was courses called enlightenment intensives where you do this back and forward uh, for seven days all day long. I had a few of those back in the eighties. Um, <laughs> blow your mind stuff. And during those particular courses, I didn't get a great deal out of them except headaches. But what happened was I continued that particular methodology by myself when I used to walk along the river in Adderdale in Perth, asking the question, who are you? Answering it and then letting the answer go. In other words, discounting the answer. And one morning in 1987, while asking this question, while walking on the beach, I'd been doing it for hours, just for fun. I found myself as the universe. So it works. The next question is, I've heard it said that enlightenment is really an accident and that meditation won't get you there, but it will make you more accident prone. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I've heard that said too. Uh, you see, you can't really enlighten yourself. You can prepare the ground for enlightenment to occur through developing a mind that is equanimous, a mind that doesn't react, a mind that is very present to reality, because beingness, of course, is real. You can self-inquire, Zen style, Advaita Vedanta style. But enlightenment is by grace. <laughs> It's an accident. Either you're ready for it or you're not ready for it. Either it happens or it doesn't happen. You can get a thousand glimpses and still not be enlightened. Those Some people think they have a glimpse and they are enlightened. That's not enlightenment. Enlightenment is being awareness, being aware of itself continuously, 24 hours a day. Beingness, being aware of itself, 24 hours a day. Or isness, whatever you want to call it, God, whatever you want to call it, aware of itself, 24 hours a day. That's enlightenment. Until then, there can be practicing. After enlightenment, there is no more practice. It's over. It's finished. Because the one that did the practicing is no longer there. The next question is, where is your responsibility to inquire who am I or should I just stop as I hear some teachers say? Wow. 
Uh, I remember Ramana Maharshi being asked this question. When should I stop self-inquiring? When should I stop asking the question, who am I? And he replied very simply and said, when there is no one left to reply, that's when you stop. And I agree with Ramana Maharshi 100%. So as far as other teachers who say stop, I disagree with them totally. Don't stop. Put your totality into it because only totality can bring you home. Nothing else. Can you please describe the Advaita Vedanta self-inquiry? <laughs> yes. So it's, it's really just turning awareness back to itself. So you don't answer the question. You can ask the question, who am I? And then you wait for the answer. Or you can ask, who's aware? So say a thought arises in your mind and you ask the question, who's aware? And there's the potential for awareness to turn back to itself. And so... Nothing happens. Another thought appears. You ask the question again. Who's aware? Or what's aware? Because really we're a what rather than a who. What's aware? Nothing happens. Another question, another thought in the mind arises. Question. What's aware? This might go on for hours. Could go on for minutes. Could go on for days. But the potential is that awareness turns back to itself. And then you have Satori. And so it's an effective methodology for finding yourself as truth. But it's not necessarily an effective methodology for finding yourself as in an ongoing way. Because unless the mind has been prepared for what is found, it's likely to start contracting or operating some form of ownership and awareness will leave itself and come back totally to the mind again. And then there's a sense from the mind's perspective, oh, that that's been lost. Well, all that's happened is awareness has shifted back to the mind and away from itself. In someone who's awake, awareness has turned onto itself and is locked on itself, like two big strong magnets together. So whatever the mind does, it doesn't matter anymore. But that's pretty advanced stuff. So self-inquiry Advaita Vedanta style is simply asking the question, who's aware or who am I over and over again and not answering it. And it can be done with another person. They can ask you the question. There are different methods that work and different variations of that. Uh, one of them that I noticed was describe the emptiness that you are. And awareness has to look back at, the, back at itself to do that. And in, if you start describing it, if you even find a little bit of it and you start describing it, it becomes bigger and bigger because awareness is turning further and further back to itself. So describe the emptiness that you are is another Advaita Vedanta question that works. Find a partner and play the game. Who's aware or... Describe the emptiness that you are. How do you take responsibility for your state of consciousness in this moment? 
<laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I, I take it you're asking me how <laughs> how do I take responsibility? How do you take responsibility for your state of consciousness in this moment? I don't. I just am. This, I just am. <laughs> Responsibility belongs to the mind. I just am. Gone beyond. Just am. Would I suffer less if I was able to take ultimate responsibility for everything? Around about 99% less. The reason that people suffer so much is because they resist life. They turn themselves into victims of life. They blame. Man, that causes so much suffering and not one bit of it is required. One of the best things I ever learnt in my life was not to be a victim. And I was lucky enough to have that intervention when I was 19. How brilliant to not be a victim of life, to not resist life. How brilliant is that? How much less suffering you have if you don't see yourself in that light where you get to blame other people or situations or yourself. It's brilliant. The next question is, do you feel responsible for the pollution of our planet and how does it help you see it that way? Truthfully, I don't think about it. I know it's happening because it's on the news, it's in the newspapers, it's on social media. The way that I live, I'm not into polluting, really. I'm not into littering. Uh, I'm a vegan. <laughs> uh, I pick rubbish up when I see it on the side of the road and put it in the bin. But, you know, the thing that really, really makes a difference here is I just love people. And I love things, love the trees, love the plants, love the animals. And when you love, you don't want to harm anything. You, want to, you don't want to do damage to anything. You don't get involved in pollution. You don't get involved in anything that is damaging to the environment or damaging to people. You just try to take care of everything and lift everything all the time. This is the way of the heart. This is the beauty way. And you are responsible for having heart or not having heart. So there's your responsibility. Because if you have heart, you take care of everything and everyone. Because that's how heart affects the mind. And that's up to you. That's your responsibility. Emma has a question. Hi, Emma. Good morning. How are you? 
Well, I'm the same as I was yesterday. <laughs> I don't tend to very much. I tend to be uh, profoundly content for no reason. Mm. Lovely. Hmm. I want to know, um, is there a purpose to cultivating healthy boundaries when you're aiming towards selflessness and you're trying to cultivate heart and selflessness, caring for other people? Yeah, I have a healthy boundary. I've just got a new puppy, he's six months old, and he likes to jump on me after he walks in the mud. And I'm, te <laughs> I'm teaching in what? <laughs> healthy boundaries. <laughs> Is that what you're talking about, Emma? <laughs> yes, yes. Look, man, if we don't have boundaries, it's like with uh, I, I've brought up three children. If we don't set boundaries for them and enforce the boundaries, they, they grow up feeling unsafe and they grow up corrupted. Uh, boundaries are are required if in life we have to have boundaries to make it work for ourselves and work it work for others it doesn't mean you have to close just because you have a boundary to the dog because he's got dirty feet and wants to jump on you you don't have to close to tell him not to do it you know mm. but he's, he doesn't understand english so it's difficult so what i do is is i have him on a lead <laughs> <laughs> it's english English might get better as he gets older. We'll see. <laughs> the boundaries in life are essential. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who walk all over you unless you tell them to stop, you know? And there's yeah. a lot of people who uh, abuse you unless you tell them to stop. This is the world we live in. But you don't have to close to do it. You just you can stay open and say no. Saying no is not against the heart. Not if you... The only time you go against the heart is when you close. You can say no from an open space. What do you think, Emma? I'm recently I've been um, seeing that it's very much my responsibility because I have been kind of um, uh, asking for it on my oh so wel welcoming shoulders and um, I feel like I'm not really honouring the this emotional capacity or the space that I have to hold this. Uh, hold on. What are people walking through your boundaries or taking advantage of uh, your openness? Yes, the taking advantage of the openness. Ah, well, that happens. Uh, people take advantage, try to take advantage of my openness all the time. <laughs> but I got pretty clean, clear boundaries uh, because I know that clear, clean boundaries are needed to operate successfully in the material world. Yeah. How can I be sure when I am uh, setting uh, a healthy, clean and clear boundary, and when I'm just trying to be selfish? Ah. Or I'm not. That's a real hard one. It really is because it took me a long time to work out what selfishness was and what selflessness was until I decided to live a life that was selfless. And then what happened was I got to see all my selfishness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I chose to live a life that was selfless so long ago now because I couldn't see any point in having a story of Vishran. It's the same as the story of Emma. It's a story of problems. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I, I felt I could do without that story because if I have that story running with me all the time, how can I actually really be in service to others? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you, Emma. The next question is, why do you teach responsibility as part of your teaching about higher consciousness and enlightenment? Because without responsibility, you don't stand a chance. Immature adults do not make it to higher consciousness full stop, let alone to enlightenment. For enlightenment to occur, you need a mind that will support that. And only a mature mind can do that. An immature mind cannot. A mind that is not responsible for itself or is unwilling to take responsibility for itself is not mature enough to support higher consciousness or enlightenment. It is that simple. And that's why I teach that. The other reason I teach it is because I run a community. And for a community to be successful, you have to have mature adults involved in it. And the more mature adults you have in any community or society, the healthier that society. The more immature people you have in a society, the less healthy that society is and the more police you need. Mature people don't need a police force, but immature police people do. They need policing because they don't take responsibility for themselves. And so there's a few reasons. One is that you can't raise your consciousness levels if you're immature and don't take responsibility for yourself. And secondly, in running a community, the assets of a community are the mature adults in that community. The liabilities of any community are the immature adults in that community. And this is just how the world rocks. The next question is, how can I be conscious of who I am all the time? You are, to do that, you'd have to be awake. So that's enlightenment to be aware of for awareness, to be aware of itself continuously is enlightenment. And so you ask the question, how can I be conscious uh, of who I am all the time? Well, the eye doesn't become conscious at all of who it, who it is because the eye is not real. Awareness itself becomes aware of itself continuously. That is enlightenment. That is consciousness. That is brilliant. The eye is just a dream. It doesn't even make it to enlightenment because it's a dream. It's a figment of your imagination. And without imagination, it doesn't actually exist. It's not real. Beingness, on the other hand, is absolutely real. Awareness, pure consciousness, is absolutely real and it is always here. And so when it is aware of itself, you are conscious of yourself all the time. But not the small self, the big self, beingness everything. And so the question, how can I be conscious of who I am all the time? You can't because you're not real. The I is not real. It disappears and awareness can find itself. That's best. The next question is, I have been trying and trying for years to awaken, but nothing has happened. Why is this? I have no idea. <laughs> Why would I know? <laughs> Why don't you come and talk to me? Why don't you come and sit with me and we'll see? Uh, 
say you've been trying for years and years to awaken. Have you tried sitting with an awakened teacher and following their instruction? When I was with my teachers, it was pretty simple. I listened and I followed their instruction to the letter. The idea that you can do enlightenment by yourself is a myth. It's too hard. The ego is too strong in its survival mechanism. You need someone who's ahead of you to show you the way. That's my understanding. That was my way. I did a lot of the work uh, on my mind in undoing the mind by myself. But basically, I've been, before awakening, I was with enlightened teachers for many, many, many years. Because their intention is to undo you and show you truth itself. Trying to do it by yourself is very difficult. Very, very, very difficult. In the presence of someone who's awake, you can start to find your mind expanding. You can start to find the silence and stillness as yourself. It's the freeway to enlightenment rather than the meandering stream that never makes it in this lifetime. The thing about being with an awakened teacher or an enlightened master is they are dangerous to your ego. And so most people avoid them. But it's not the ego that wakes up. The ego is the thing that's in the way. If you really want enlightenment, find someone who's awake who you can get close to. That's the best thing you can do for you. Next question is, how do I not use spirituality to escape feelings that I don't like? No, don't use it. <laughs> you can use certain methodologies of spirituality to uh, get away from your feelings. You can even use satsang because in satsang you can lose your mind and all your suffering disappears suddenly. But the one thing that I've noticed that you can't use to escape with that is a spiritual practice is the practice of openness. And you can practice openness without anyone knowing while you're in the marketplace all day long. And it cannot be used as a methodology to escape anything. It is really cool. And that's why quite often I'll say that openness counts for everything up to you you probably won't want to use it because it won't help you escape <laughs> it's up to you human beings are just massive escape artists they really don't want to feel things that are uncomfortable so they have they'll use every spiritual tool to escape self-inquiry meditation uh, asanas uh, chanting <laughs> yoga the whole bit they'll use everything to escape but the one thing you can't use to escape that is a spiritual practice is openness and openness supports heart and it supports awakening up to you. When I sit down to meditate, I sometimes get sleepy, even though I've been getting plenty of sleep. Why is this? Try dancing before you sit. Sounds like you have uh, energy coming out of you. Probably what they call tamasic energy, which is like that unconscious, tired type of energy. And if you have a good dance, a rigorous dance before you sit, you can clear yourself of that energy and you'll find that sitting is much easier. My master, Osho Rajneesh, created two meditations to handle uh, 
what was still inside people from the marketplace. Uh, and that was Kundalini meditation and dynamic meditation, both of which are very active in the beginning and the last stage of sitting. And the activity allows the purging of all the things inside so you can sit. And I recommend uh, that just trying to sit and you've picked up a heap from work or you've created a heap yourself, it's going to put you to sleep. You're better off having a good, strong dance and then sitting or a run or a walk or a swim, anything but just sitting. <laughs> so if you want to stay awake, do some physical exercise first, do some purging, clear whatever you've picked up. So your mind is clear before you sit. That's best. What do you mean when you say die on the outward breath? <laughs> so you breathe out and there's, you're just dying. You go, ah, it's like a complete let go. It's like, ah, it's like it's the last breath you're ever going to let go of. And as you're breathing out, you, your whole body is relaxing in that outward breath because it's just, ah. And so you can use the outward breath to let go of everything. It's brilliant. It, it really is. I used the outward breath oh, for years and years and years just to let go of things. Because when we hold our breath, we're holding on to things. And you find that people who are fearful quite often are breathing very, very shallowly. We can even let go of fear by breathing out fully. Just that, ah, let go, let go, let go. Die. <laughs> the next question is, am I actually responsible for everything that happens to me? No, you're responsible for your feelings. Uh, the world is going to do what it does. Someone runs into you with a motor car. Uh, it's not your responsibility that you got run into, but it is your responsibility how you feel about it and how you react to it. That's your responsibility. And so a lot of what we get involved with is actually we're out of control. We don't have the control. People love to think they have control, but we don't have that much. People like to think they can change the world. Best of luck. I don't think so. We don't have that much control at all, but we do have the ability to take responsibility for how we feel about things. We do have the responsibility of our actions and our words. We are responsible for those. What happens to us, man, we live in a chaotic world where all sorts of things happen and we don't have much control over it. Let go. Oh, the Christians have this wonderful saying, let go and let God. It's pretty cool. Let go and let God. That's, that involves trust. Let go and trust. And if you're interested in higher consciousness in enlightenment, it is all about trust. You give yourself to beingness. You as an I, as a mind, give yourself to beingness. You give yourself to God. And so then existence uses you. You don't use you anymore. You give yourself to God totally, in totality. That's best.
I've noticed that some people feel the Buddha field and some people don't. What enables someone to feel it? Yeah, it's a good question. I remember when I first went to America to see Osho Rajneesh in 1984, I didn't feel much of him. And I was relatively sensitive, but I just didn't feel much of him. And I didn't, I didn't even consider it. I just thought everyone wasn't feeling much of him. But then when I went back the following year in 1985, man, he blew my socks off with his energy field. It's not that his energy field had changed. It's just that between 1984 and 85, I had opened up more. Because in those years, I was a businessman. And as a businessman, I was pretty closed and uh, warlike. And something inside of me opened. And in that opening, I became much more sensitive to energies and way, way more sensitive to his energy. And so I think that people who can't feel the Buddha field of someone who's awake, because it is there, it's palpable, simply are too close to feel it. That's all. And if they could drop those defense systems, they would feel it. The next question is, are our thoughts really our own? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you have a thought and you think it's yours, is it? I've been pondering this one. <laughs> I've been pondering this one for so long, it's not funny. Where do the thoughts come from? <laughs> I, I've got, I, I now am quite okay with, I don't know. The only reason we want to know is somehow we want to be in control and I don't care about control. I like to step into the unknown like the cosmic fool with not knowing so much freedom in that. There's no freedom in constantly trying to know All you're doing is constantly trying to control. Let go step into the unknown without knowing what's, what's going to happen. Be free. Let go. Become like a little kid again. Not knowing. Wonderment occurs. All our knowing so we can control keeps us stuck in our heads. Let go. Be free. Step into the unknown without looking. Trust. Trust. Up to you. Your responsibility. Thank you for satsang. Good to see you brave hearts here today. <laughs>